This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bobcast. I am Caleb Castro. And I'm Andrew Smith. And we're excited to be jumping back into uh, the wonderful works of God. Here we have uh, chapter five today on the manner of special revelation. How's things? Well... About as you know, good as it can get driving across the country in in a couple of days and driving through uh, Nebraska. Hey, no offense to any Nebraskans, Andrew. You mean like me? At least it was better than Wyoming. <sighs> Why do you hurt me? <laughs> uh, I, you know what? It's I, I'm I'm a Californian, so <laughs> who's the worst one here? So everybody, I mean, harsh is on you. I know, right? Well. Yeah, we got here, uh, we said chapter five, we just moved out from Wonderful Works of God. Chapters three and four were on general revelation. Any comment on that? <laughs> it was fun. I had a good time. It seems like it's been a long time because it was a long time, at least like chapter three and such. Well, 10 out of 10 would generally revelate again. Yeah. So we're looking here at special revelation and Bobbing pretty much comes out of the gate of asking us why is special revelation actually needed? Which it shouldn't come as any surprise because we, while going through the chapters on general revelation, constantly overstepped our bounds and we're talking about special revelation also. That's true. But on the bright side, hopefully then that gives some extra background context so we can take some different directions with this, I suppose, or at least in a way, get a little bit more detailed on that since Bobbing spends this chapter and then chapter six is pretty hefty. <laughs> or finish this book before we get into our 40s. But why? I don't know, because there's other books. I mean, if we take this long for this, what's going to happen when we do dogmatics? We're just trying to rival Voss Group, but without having the credentials, intelligence, or... Uh, budget. You know, or the wit. Speaking of budget, if you would like to help us with the cost of putting on this show, there is a donate link at bobcast.com. Oh, tell me more. Or you can buy Amazon books there, too. Also through the link, we get a cut from that, I guess. <laughs> We're commission salesmen. Not so popular these days. This is really a cry for help. We're seminarians. You know, that usually doesn't come with a lot of income. Mm -hmm. So Bob Inc. is our only source of income. And we're probably about like $600 in the red every month. Not really. No. <laughs> but it does cost a little money. You know, hosting fees and such. Speaking of hosting fees. So general revelation... That was rough. Rough segue. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, yeah, and getting into special revelation, uh, that very first line pretty much tells us the basis of why Bob Inc. is doing this chapter. He starts it off with saying, The inadequacy of general revelation demonstrates the necessity of special revelation. So... We want to kind of remember from chapter three, Bobbing gave us kind of a general definition of general revelation and special revelation. Basically, in general revelation, just as a reminder, God makes use of the usual run of a phenomena of events and the usual course of events to reveal himself. Special revelation, God employs unusual means such as appearances, theophanies, prophecies, and miracles to make himself known to man. Speech. Speech, which we will definitely be touching on quite a good bit here. Yeah, speech is pretty much the big thing, huh? 
Yep. Everything needs speech to communicate. That's why we're using our mouths right now. Yeah. And then in chapter four, sort of as the last stop on general revelation before getting into special revelation, he basically brings us to the conclusion that he now opens with this idea that for all the things that general revelation is and does, like even end of chapter three, we had all those proofs, those things that can point us to, you know, at least there being a God. For all the things that general revelation does, it's not enough. It doesn't save. It doesn't bring us into the knowledge of, into fellowship and communion with God. Yeah, it's especially important then for a uh, fallen man, right? We need a communion with God because it's been broken by sin. Right. I mean, we were created in true righteousness and holiness, but we are not that way anymore. Right. And this first big paragraph here on page 45, uh, Bob Inc. has a part here right in the middle or just about the middle. He says, if it is God's good pleasure to restore a sin devastated creation and to recreate man after his own image and cause him to live once more in the eternal blessedness of heaven, then a special revelation is necessary, which is what Andrew was talking about then the inadequacy of general revelation. In this way, then, there's three characteristics that Bobbing points out is prevalent in all revelation, whether it's general or special. This is kind of going to guide us throughout the rest of this chapter. So three things all revelation has. They're acts of God's grace. They are free dispensations of his will and tokens of undeserved favor and perpetually forfeited favor. So, yeah, we look at these three attributes that Bobbing has given. I mean, they're all related. They all deal with God's grace, how God is not obligated to reveal himself to us in this way. There wouldn't be any deficiency or injustice in God if after the fall, God had simply either destroyed man or just left man to himself without hope of redemption. God, though, you know, this is Westminster Seven language again. Voluntary divine condescension is what he does. He comes down, he enters into a new covenant with Adam at the fall, the covenant of grace. Yeah, so basically, special revelation then is salvific then. It's soteriological. It's redemptive. It's redemptive, right. Bob Inc. is going to keep hitting on that as we go throughout. You'll kind of see underneath this redemptive contour unfolding in the story of creation, the story of this world. What distinguishes, you know, special revelation from general revelation here is general revelation is speaking to us about God as creator, sovereign Lord of history. And yet special revelation is pointing to God's saving mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, all of history pointing towards it. So, so special revelation is unraveling the strand of God, the father revealed in Christ. Going back to what Bob Inc. said about history, and we got a little bit into, for instance, Hegel and the philosophy there, where in Hegel's view that history is constantly progressing towards something. For Bob Inc., the climax of all history is Christ, everything before looking towards, looking ahead to it, and then everything since looking back upon it. And for Hegel, it's progressing towards pantheism. Yeah. Yeah, so in all of history pointing towards Christ, like Andrew said, special revelation is then looking at reestablishing the uh, fellowship between God and man redemptively, and that has to come through Christ, the word incarnate. So basically, the purpose of special revelation from the very beginning, even all the way in the garden, is the glorification of God by man entering into the fullness of the knowledge of him, and that fullness will come in Christ. So basically... 
you're seeing like eschatological contours of a special revelation since the garden. Everything is going somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. God is not just mindlessly having history kind of float and see how it goes. Uh, you know, he's not going and just kind of going with the flow and, you know, seeing then what might be the next best action to help little poor man out. Yeah, he's not just figuring it out as he goes along as, say, open theism or something of the like would confess. Yeah, in fact, we're going to point a little bit towards process theology a little bit later, uh, kind of Bobbing's comment on it, or at least anticipating process theology. So special revelation has a, a purpose that's eschatological. Its other purposes then are also recreation, going and reconciling and bringing all things, not just in a static manner and bringing man to fellowship with God. It's also taking it further and making things even better than they were in the garden, than our original state. Right. There are some key differences, like, for instance, in the garden, man had the ability to sin, which, as we know, he acted out on, uh, whereas in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not have the ability to sin. We will not have the ability to fall again. Yeah, and so through uh, the developing process then of history, because of the way things actually have gone, they're, they're all according to God's counsel. God is entirely sovereign in this process of history, if you will, this, this or rather unfolding of history. God is revealing himself as triune, though there is a little bit of a difference in, say, a special revelation before the fall and after the fall. You know, man wasn't exactly in need of a redemption before the fall into a fall of sin. And yet God was still divinely displaying himself, disclosing himself to man before the fall in the means of the covenant of works. Now that's no longer possible. The, the covenant of works cannot be kept by a sinful man. The conditions of it stand broken until someone else comes to pick up the pieces of it. But that comes later. Right. And this is where then sin ultimately suppresses the truth of divine revelation, of a special revelation. In general revelation, yeah, like you said, isn't adequate to pick up on this. Someone else has to. Right. Our knowledge of general revelation, too, is so fallen. We corrupt it. We pervert it. We attribute it to things that it doesn't belong to. And otherwise, as you know, we've spoken about in the first couple chapters of this book, at the same time, yeah, our, our knowledge is so limited, even in a general manner. There's things about its nature and creation and in this world that we just, we're never going to make sense of. And we will never know everything about everything right. exhaustively. I mean, even the more we know, the more we find we don't know. The more things we answer, the more questions we raise. Well, speaking of a question, so then how does God reveal himself in special revelation? Well, there are several ways. We can look, for instance, as Bavink does on page 47, Hebrews 1.1, God, who in former times spoke by the prophets in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son. So there is speech, there is prophetic revelation, there's miracles, there's various ways, various times, various manners in which God has revealed himself. And you get a list of them here that Bobbing gives. Appearing, revealing, showing, making known, proclaiming, teaching, speaking, especially provocative, that God actually speaks to his creation. So that's a pretty profound thing. I mean, perhaps, uh, you know, we, we take a little for granted of the remarkability of that statement. Uh, it's not exactly an, an uncommon idea in uh, contemporary theology. Yeah, at least in Reformed dogmatics, you know, he, he really elaborates on this amazing thing that God actually speaks. 
it seems kind of obvious to us as an obvious phenomenon that God actually does speak. We see it throughout scripture, but I want to just kind of point out some evolving thoughts on the significance of that. From Reformed Dogmatics, page 458 onwards, the word is not an empty set of vibrations in the air, nor an empty sign or a cold symbol, but every word, also every human word, is a power greater and more durable than the power of the sword. Encapsulated within it is thought, mind, soul, and life. If this applies to words in general, how much more is it true of the word that proceeds from the mouth of God and is spoken by him? That is a word that creates and maintains, judges and kills, recreates and renews, and always accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish and never returns empty. And one more where he kind of continues on that thought then and drawing out an example he points actually to the power of the human word. So the, the, the power of the human word depends on the extent to which person puts one's heart and soul into it, on the distance existing between the person and one's speech. But in the case of God, that is different. It is always his word. He is always present in it. He consistently sustains it by his almighty and omnipresent power. It is always God himself who, in whatever form and by whatever means, brings it to people and calls them by it. Therefore, even though the word of God that is freely proclaimed by ministers or conveyed to people by way of personal admonition, public address, a book or other writing, is indeed taken from scripture, but not identical with scripture. It is still a word from God, a word that comes to human beings, but is originally from God and is spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore always effective. We touched slightly on this in our other episode with Rudy Manrique on bobbing on worship, there is power in the word is bobbing's point here that even human words have power. Philosophically, we might speak about, you know, the might appeal to linguistics with a speech act theory. But for God, there's something even greater there. A perfect word. I mean, for God, his speech is so powerful that it's the means by which he creates. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and on and on through the creation narrative, it is God speak, and things come into being that were not. And Bavin continues to describe other ways in which God's speech is power, it is unique. Quoting Psalm 33, By his word were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And then... Later, verse 9, he speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. And he quotes several more verses. God's speech is not like our speech. We can't speak and do things like that. We can't speak and cause things like that. We kind of get back to our archetypal, ectypal. We don't speak the same way God speaks. It's only a shadow. It's only a glimpse of that. You know, in that way, you know, the word of God can never actually be separate from God. Or from Christ and the, or the Holy Spirit is perfectly triune right. together. Whereas, I mean, I, I don't know if we can say, you know, our word can technically be separated from us as humans, but we, yeah, we certainly can't go and redeem people. We can't go and say something or even preachers to go and, you know, mold people out of the dust. <laughs> or for that matter, I mean, we can speak things that are not true. We can speak falsehood. We can speak deception. We can speak things that are not, whereas God, by his word, speaks things that are, and they become. And that are entirely true about himself. So when he goes and speaks, he's fully, in every single time, in his word, revealing himself, which is holy, good, true, perfect. You know, and he's always going to be going and doing exactly what he intends 
and in light of revealing himself as glorious and sin as sinful. Um, I think this is one of the times uh, maybe a little hang up in, say, the tendency to grab onto speech act theory in the employee of theology. It's a helpful philosophical category. And I do think we have to be careful, though, in making what we've been talking about here, God's godliness, God's otherness, uh, and how different it is when he speaks versus man, like Andrew was just saying. Would you, for the listener, define speech act theory? Basically, speech act theory, it's a philosophical uh, linguistic category where basically there's three types of speech that represent communication. You have the locutionary act, the elocutionary act, and perlocutionary actions. Basically, the locutionary act is like, you know, this is the actual act of saying, the act, an actual utterance that goes out from you. The elocutionary type of speech is basically the extra meaning that's put in the utterance produced on the basis of its literal meaning. You know, for a perlocutionary act, that's the effect on the hearer. So for an illocution, it's like when I'm communicating something, you know, I'm not just saying it, I'm not just doing locutionary act. If I say something like, you know, fire, you know, I run into a crowded room and I yell fire. You know, I have an intention of telling people, hey, there's a fire, there's danger, uh, you know, get out. The illocutionary act is communicating that intent behind what I just said. Fire. The perlocutionary act then is the actual effect that happens on the hearer within whatever context. So I yell fire and a bunch of people in that room hear that. They're going to start like freaking out. Maybe they'll, they'll start panicking and running out of the room. You know, this this could change if, say, I ran into a, a Pentecostal church meeting and I yell fire. If my intention is, hey, there's fire, the building's on fire, it's freaking out, you know, let's get out of here. The Pentecostal or charismatic listeners might be like, yeah, Holy Spirit, fire, you know, and start like speaking in tongues and falling on the floor or something. So that's different than the intention I had. God is always going to accomplish what he intends. And it's always going to have the effect that he himself necessarily intends. And this includes uh, in the hardening of hearts by those who will not listen to him and the ways in which he communicates or the softening of the heart. In God's special revelation, as we'll get into a little bit later, basically carries in it not only a redemption, but an aspect of judgment. So Bavink continues as we're getting near the bottom of page 47 in Wonderful Works. He says, All these works of God and creation and providence can rightly be called a speaking or a saying for the reason that God is a personal, conscious, thinking being who brings all things into existence by the word of his power and who thus puts thoughts into the mind of man which man, as his image and likeness, can read and understand. God most certainly has something to say to man in his works. So we see all of creation is an act of God speaking. All of creation is God's revelation to man in some sense. We've obviously been going through this in general revelation, how works of creation and providence are part of God's revelation, but it's more than just that. Yeah, which, I mean, there are some theologians that have kind of an allergic reaction to this kind of language, thinking especially of then Karl Barth, 20th century Swiss-German theologian, who'd be kind of a forerunner, if you will, of neo-orthodoxy. Basically, he doesn't like the idea of general revelation uh, as in, in any manner. He thinks, you know, revelation must be in the medium of grace, uh, in that medium of grace specifically is Jesus Christ. And so he, he's not going to associate in the first place any revelation of God as being, say, speech. If God was speaking, then he's breaking into the realm of the phenomenal, of the, the ordinary creation. And God is so beyond creation, he doesn't break through in that. 
So I think, yeah, Bart has some uh, some issues in this manner, if I'm at least understanding him correctly. But yeah, Bob Inc. has the, this other notion, like you were saying. You know, he says in Reform Dogmatics, uh, Volume 2, page 425, the whole world is thus the realization of an idea of God. The world is a book containing letters, large and small, from which his wisdom can be known. Now, uh, Andrew, what does that remind you of? So that reminds me of Belgic Confession, Article 2, the means by which we know God, this doctrine of the two books. So that says, we know him, that is God, by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. So we see here, even in the Belgic Confession, this mid-16th century document, this idea of general special revelation, the revelation that is done through creation, and then the revelation that is done through the word. You know, and that's a huge contrast to our society today where, you know, you might have a, a notions of kind of like, you know, hey, write your own story, be the change you want to see or something like that. This idea of creating your own world. Which kind of gets back into that idea we talked about before with Hegel and Schleiermacher and kind of romanticism and this idea of becoming. Yeah, Think of that idea of becoming in, like, say, if you were to have some kind of concept of revelation still, and yet weren't a Christian. Or, or maybe even for some Christians, you think of revelation as not really being something external, something that's being, you know, given to you from outside, but is an unconscious and involuntary manifestation. Something that, you know, inside of you that's going on. Well, and this is, again, kind of going back to what we talked about in worship, this idea of something that we experience as God's revelation to us. And what kind of effect would that have on God? If God actually worked like that, what would it mean? <laughs> well, it would seem to mean, for one thing, the experience of God and the knowledge of God, it becomes completely subjective. God to you might be different from God to me, because you might experience him in some different way than I do. If that's the case, then like we end up collapsing God into ourselves, into our own humanity. That is pantheism itself. Right. You know, God is whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm thinking, whatever my attitude or conscience is dictating. He's my truth. Stop me if you've heard that. Yeah, he's my truth. And the thing is, there's no actual truth. With that, then, if, if there's, you know, my truth versus your truth, and there's no objective truth, and yet if we're still claiming God to be real, if we're still claiming some kind of revelation to be real, then, I mean, that is process theology. God is going through a process and change of truth and affections in us. Right. God has to develop. God has to learn. God has to grow. He is becoming something. He is on his way to somewhere, as opposed to the God that we know, the God that we confess, who is immutable and unchanging. 
Likewise, in Bobbing's The Philosophy of Revelation, uh, page 27, he states that the word itself rests on revelation. You know, revelation is the presupposition, the foundation, the secret of all that exists in all its forms. You know, the word is something that's purely external because we're, we're saying, like, whose word is it? Is it the divine word in us that this consciousness? No, we have a word that's been communicated from the outside and is even inscripturated. You know, so we have special revelation that ultimately comes down on the form of the Bible. There, there's a strong link between those. God's special revelation, his word indeed throughout all of history, a written word, a form of communication that we even we can, in a sense, read with our own eyes and, and understand to some manner. I mean, the, the revelation of God and the treasury of his wisdom right in our own hands. So Bavink goes on to describe special revelation and a very important point that he makes this in the middle of page 50. The central content of special revelation is the person and work of Christ. Again, we have, you know, him as the high point of history. He says, this Christ is heralded and described centuries before in the Old Testament. And once he has appeared and has accomplished his work, he is again interpreted and explained in the writings of the New Testament. This special revelation consequently follows a line which leads to the Christ, but parallel with it and in connection with it, it leads also to the scriptures, the word of God. So we have this unfolding of redemptive history. So like we said before, Hebrews 1.1, God who in the former time spoke through the prophets is now spoken through the Son. The Son is the highest, best, you'd almost say final word the fullness of history, the fullness of revelation, of the process of revelation throughout all time. There's a really good quote he says, uh, actually, on this, at the bottom of page 54. He says this in the context of the miracles, but basically, it's the same idea. The Old Testament goes and shows that Jehovah was God and that there was none beside him, and ultimately point to Christ. It's kind of the final underline of this. Yeah, so, you know, we, we've gone back to this motif a good bit in the past, but you know, here when, when, when God is going and revealing himself in history in not just general revelation, but also special revelation, you know, here again, we have God's condescension, his voluntary condescension of lowering himself and accommodating himself to, you know, to us, his, his image bearers. And the ultimate way that he goes and condescends and accommodates is in the form of the written word. Bobbing says in Reform Dogmatics, Volume 1, uh, page 379, the written word is, is, I mean, the primary way that he gives expressions to his thoughts is the expression of his divine plan for his creatures. And really, that that's the whole big reason that, you know, we as Christians, as, as Protestant, Reformed Evangelicals, emphasize so much on the importance of the inerrant, infallible, perfect word. Why we say we're, we're sola scriptura. It is the word of God in God coming down because of our inadequacy. God's come down and dwelled with us as Christ in the flesh. And at this point, now that he's uh, ascended, he's sitting on the throne in all exaltation and still reigning. He's dwelling with us, uh, so to speak, metaphorically, even in the way of his word. It's in it's fixed. It's permanent. We have scripture for redemptive purpose. So with that, we're going to pause for now. We will come back. We will wrap up chapter five talking about the manner of special revelation. We thank you for joining us. Remember to subscribe. Remember to leave us a review. Remember to tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, tell anyone. Help spread the word of Bobcast if you like what we're doing because it's more fun with friends. 
If you don't like what we're doing, you can also tell them still, like, stay away from us. I don't know. I've heard things are generally better with friends, but I wouldn't know because I don't have any. Me either. Andrew and I actually hate each other. We do. We fight and, you know, it's fantastic. It's true. So anyway, um, (laughs) thank you for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. And until next time, totzines. Totzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.